The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. This is a People's History of Kansas City, a podcast from KCUR Studios. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Being a free black man in Missouri before the Civil War was really rare, let alone a wealthy black man. But that's who Hiram Young was. Based out of Independence, Missouri, just east of Kansas City, Hiram Young was a key figure in making westward trail exploration possible. Independence was a place where the Oregon, Santa Fe, and California trails all began. And even before the Civil War, Young went from being enslaved to creating vast sums of money far beyond his wildest dreams. But his story, his wealth, and his lasting legacy were almost lost. You know, it was kind of like a secret, uh, something underlying that, that we were not told about. But that's changing. KCUR's Carlos Moreno is going to tell us the story. So back in the early 1800s in Independence, Missouri, adventurers and speculators filled the Oregon, Santa Fe, and California trails wanting to trade with Mexicans or start a new life out west. The town bustled. If you read the journals from that era, the people would remark of the colorful sounds of the town from the blacksmith shops and the the different vendors, people heading west. Those early day entrepreneurs, they laid the groundwork for an enterprising, hardworking, former enslaved man, Hiram Young, to amass a fortune, leaving a legacy in eastern Jackson County. Hiram Young was a big deal. He helped build a church in Independence, and he built a school that carries his name, Young School. But even that distinction got muddied over time. I thought it was a, a school for young blacks. That's what I thought Young meant. Just young school for young kids, young black kids. Alversia Pettigrew says that as a black child growing up in Independence, she never put two and two together until a local historian, Bill Curtis, wrote a book and started talking about Hiram Young. You know, it was kind of like a secret, uh, something underlying that that we were not told about. There's no first name attached to the words Young School carved above the building's entrance. Nowhere in the building was there ever any hint that Young was a reference to a former slave and entrepreneur. That's changing now. A nonprofit group is remodeling the old school, and Hiram Young's legacy will be front and center when the project is complete. The tribute is long overdue because, in a lot of ways, Young's story is the story of America, how industry transformed the country, and how race relations have and haven't changed in 200 years. Hiram Young was in a very fortunate place at the time because Independence and a few other jumping-off towns between here and Omaha was the epicenter of the westward movement into, into what became the American West. Travis Boley is the association manager at the Oregon-California Trails Association in Independence. His office lies a stone's throw from the actual trail wagon ruts that remain from those early trails, a reminder of how many wagons launched westward from here. Try to imagine what it would take to haul around 6,000 pounds of freight in the 1850s. You're about to leave Independence, Missouri. You've got all this stuff, and it's got to traverse rivers, mountains, and desert. The only way to do that at that time was to load up a wagon, a big, reliable wagon, hook up draft animals like horses, mules, or oxen, then start walking to Santa Fe, Oregon, or California. 
Most people didn't ride those wagons west. They walked alongside. Wagons were hard, unforgiving modes of transportation. No such thing as shock absorbers. And someone had to build those wagons and the yokes to bind those animals together to pull these massive loads of equipment, supplies, and livelihoods across a rugged, unpredictable landscape. That someone was Hiram Young. He started making ox yokes, building ox yokes, and then, of course, that drifted into the building wagons. Ox yokes require shaping curves into a piece of timber using an adze or a spokeshave tool so the yoke rests comfortably on the necks of beasts paired side by side. Ralph Goldwaith knows a lot about wagons and yokes and Hiram Young's role in making westward trail expansion possible. He gives tours of independence and doles out the city's history while riding a 19th century style wagon pulled by mules. Yeah, at that time it was just incredible, you know, the, uh, the commerce, it was boom town on top of boom town, you know. The Santa Fe Trail was a merchant route that kind of got it all started, you know, and then the commerce of the Expansion West, you know, just doubled on top of that. And then, of course, the gold rush, you know. Goldway thinks that Hiram Young, while he was enslaved, worked on the side to make axe handles and pick handles out of scrap lumber. Then, while he was in Independence, Hiram Young built some of the best quality wagons and yokes. So much so, he became one of the town's wealthiest citizens. Not just a wealthy black citizen, but one of Independence's richest people at the time. That's what makes a great story. You take you take what what he what he started as and what he became, you know. Historians generally agree that Young was born in Tennessee around 1812, give or take a year or two. He was born into slavery and found his way to Springfield in the 1840s with his owner. A historian named William Patrick O'Brien writes in his book, Merchants of Independence, that sometime after Young moved to Missouri, his owner brought him to Liberty north of Independence. No one seems quite sure when, and this is where we get off to a good question of how and when Hiram Young became a free man. He was a skilled laborer, and he was very good with woodworking. Diane Houston is a teacher and a historian in Kansas City. And when I found out about Hiram Young, I just thought, for the anniversary of the Santa Fe Trail, what a better story to really dig into. And there wasn't, surprisingly, that much out there. Houston lives near Red Bridge Road. It's one of the few places in Kansas City where someone can see any mention of Hiram Young's contribution to westward expansion. This is where wagons he built would cross the Blue River after heading south from Independence. Here they would turn west toward the prairie. The current bridge now features Hiram's face on a steel plaque along with nine other plaques celebrating individuals who contributed to the pioneering of the three trails. But before any of those wagons reached Red Bridge Road, Hiram had to insert himself into the independence business environment. And he befriends the first mayor of independence, William McCoy, and is able to get him to kind of be an advocate for him for him and his, and his wife and his small child at the time. By most accounts, Hiram Young was already demonstrating his woodworking prowess and his business savvy by connecting with McCoy and making a move to secure his and his wife's freedom. It's possible that just before moving to Independence, Hiram had whittled and sold enough axe and pick handles to buy his own freedom and then his wife's by around 1847. But that can't be verified. Many of the free blacks uh, acquired their freedom through self-purchase. And when after and others were given their freedom by their owners, in many cases um, in their wills. That's Professor Fred Knight of Morehouse College in Atlanta. 
He studies African-American diaspora. That would not be unusual for a free black to purchase his wife. Um, you saw that in urban spaces and in the rural South, you saw that. Anecdotally, folks in independence who know of Hiram Young will tell you Hiram had made so much money on the side that he bought his wife's freedom before his own so that their child would be born free. The laws at the time said any child born to a slave would also be a slave. Hiram Young, many say, feared for his child to be born into slavery and bought his wife's freedom before his own. But Fred Knight says that a slave being able to own property at that time was not likely. The problem with a slave buying a wife's freedom is that even a free black buying a, a, a family member's freedom can have tenuous legal standing. Regardless of whose narrative you want to follow, the generally established story is that by 1850, Hiram, his wife, and newborn daughter Amanda Jane were all living as free people in Independence, Missouri. And that made them a rarity. I mean, to consider the fact that at the time when Hiram Young was a like a freedman living in Independence, Missouri, there were only 41 freed blacks in the entire county. And that 41 out of, there were 2,969 slaves and a population of 10,990 whites. And he's one of 41. You have to remember, life for any African-American in Independence, Missouri, around this time was generally miserable. Those who weren't slaves often worked as servants or field hands. They were denied the right to own much of anything. Gathering in public or for religious purposes was either illegal or highly discouraged. But Travis Boley at the Oregon California Trails Association says Hiram Young simply defied most expectations. I mean, he was the exception to the, to the rule, which was generally that even if you were free, you generally probably lived in poverty. And not only that, but he's establishing a business in independence. So when he gets to independence, he, he lives in, a, in a, a log cabin with no door on it. And he hangs up, you know, animal skins to block out the cold. That's what we're talking about of a man starting at that level. Along with his initiative, Young lucked into some good timing. Independence, the county seat of Jackson County, had become the preferred location for launching on any one of the three dominant trails westward. The town offered fresh water springs and plenty of land where pioneers could camp out, sometimes for months, waiting for their opportunity to load up a wagon. Travis Boley says anyone looking to go west almost had to stop in Independence just because of the sheer limitations of the land. This was a unique location in a couple of regards. Obviously, the Missouri River starts bending to the north here. So this is about as far west as you can go on the Missouri River. And also, kind of the eastern woodlands peter out here. Wagon makers and outfitters thrived in the town of around 1,500 people. By this time, Young had graduated from axe and pick handles and was constructing entire wagons. He managed to carve out a niche for himself as the premier supplier of the most important item pioneers needed to navigate their way, especially for the commercial hall to Santa Fe. It was like a the I-70 of its day between really two distinct countries for the first 27 years of the trade along that. William Patrick O'Brien writes that by 1860, Hiram Young had turned out thousands of wagons and yokes. He was widely recognized as someone churning out not just a lot of wagons, but the best wagons. So now, Hiram Young had amassed significant wealth. He employed upwards of 60 people in his shop and on his farm. Young's factory had become the largest wagon manufacturer in Independence, and he also demonstrated an early flair for marketing. Young proudly identified his wagons with the brand 
Hiram Young and Company and added the initials of the wagon's purchaser. Historian Fred Knight says, through this public display of ownership, Hiram's name was becoming an asset, growing his business and his reputation. Property was something that uh, people identify through public displays of it. One study commissioned in 1973 calculated that Hiram Young was 56 times wealthier than the average Jackson County citizen. He had a large brick home and a, and a logging business because he needed to be able to build these wagons. So he was, he was he, they say he couldn't read or write, but he could tell you by looking at a tree how, how much lumber you could get out of it. But he also had help Fred Knight figures. In, in order for a, a black person to acquire property, uh, for them to have standing in the community, there would be, need to be some kind of connection to white patron. Uh, that's how it often uh, that's how it often worked. Young's patron was entrepreneur and then mayor of Independence William McCoy. McCoy had come to Independence from Ohio with his brothers. McCoy appeared to act as sort of a business agent for Young. He was an advocate for Young and his wife and small child. McCoy provided cover. He had the backing of some other prominent businessmen here in Independence who were able to kind of help him maneuver around being a, a, a black man with money in that era was uncomfortable, um, as he would soon find out during the Civil War. Hiram Young's growing wealth and reputation didn't spare him from the strife and struggles of being a black man in pre-Civil War America. Yeah, it, it was precarious. Um, one's existence was always, as a free person, under potential threat. Hiram Young had to be constantly tiptoeing around his roles as businessman, freed black man, and local community member he managed to develop a working relationship within a community that generally viewed people of color as less than equal. John Tyler is a historian at the University of Central Missouri. Here he is reading from the book, Merchants of Independence. It appears that Jackson County businessmen would do business with a free black man if he made the best wagons in the trade and if the price was right. Later, when the usefulness of such people ended, so did any pretext of toleration or accommodation. Independence at the time demonstrated maybe some amount of tolerance and diversity, says Travis Boley. Independence was a very international city in those days. A lot of languages, different languages were spoken. So Hiram Young may have benefited from that environment, and he produced something people needed. By the early 1860s, Hiram Young was churning out hundreds of wagons a year, probably thousands of ox yokes and he was a major employer. And so he's able to employ an exorbitant amount of people, both white and black, and, and one of the things that comes up a lot is that he did own slaves. That's right, the former slave turned slave master. But it may not be quite that stark. Houston says Hiram Young employed slaves so they could learn a skill and buy their way out of slavery, much like Young did himself. He might have kept them enslaved, if you will, but were they really slaves? So again, we know he owned slaves, but we also know he let people work for their freedom. Young's success ultimately didn't guarantee him relief from the racial tensions simmering along the Missouri-Kansas border. Around the middle of the 19th century, the looming Civil War began to make his presence in independence uneasy. Remember, Kansas was a free state, and Missouri, despite some pretty strong pro-slave sentiment, remained officially neutral. By 1860, so pre-Civil War, but on the cusp, it's not safe for a black man 
a colored man of means in his own words to stay in Independence, Missouri. It's just not safe. In 1861, Quantrill's raiders were already at work in the area. Confederate soldiers were marching toward independence for what would be one of the first urban battles of the Civil War in the first battle of independence. Independence swirled with secessionist and pro-union sentiment. Divided loyalties made doing business in Missouri, especially for a freed black man, difficult and potentially deadly. So he moved across the border to Kansas. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's going to be bumping. You got to be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. So he moves to Leavenworth, which makes sense because he goes to Leavenworth because Leavenworth is also going to have government contracts. So he moves where the business is and he stays up there for quite a bit of time. There was something else about Leavenworth. It had a fort. For about four decades, Fort Leavenworth protected settlers moving along the Santa Fe Trail. Now it tried to keep the peace in the midst of the slavery strife. Young either moved directly into the fort or worked near it. While in Leavenworth, he met another freeman, Hiram Revels. She's a reverend, and he asks him, hey, I want to establish a church when I get back to, you know, to independence. Will you come and help me? And he's like, sure. Other than his meeting with Hiram Revels, we don't know too much else about Hiram Young's time in Leavenworth. He seems to have continued making wagons and ox yokes and earning a living by outfitting the federal government for freighting purposes. And then the war ended, and Young returned to Independence, hoping to pick up where he left off and started building that church. But when he got to Jackson County, he found much of his business and home destroyed or plundered. Union General Thomas Ewing had issued Order No. 11, which exiled people from their homes in an attempt to quell guerrilla violence along the Missouri-Kansas border. This resulted in plundered properties with homes and farmland left smoldering. But he also finds that he's lost a ton of property because the Union pillaged, so the Union Army pillaged his property and destroyed a lot of it. Not just Union soldiers, but others had raided his shops and his property, taking supplies and destroying much of his equipment. He estimated the damage to be over $22,000. That's around $400,000 in today's dollars. Damage included 40 head of cattle, 37 wagons, and 7,000 bushels of corn. The losses were massive. Young would end up suing the United States government for around $20,000 of the losses from the war. In the meantime, he persevered. So he still had business. It just wasn't to the effect of what it was before. It's still completely significant to what makes Hiram's story so amazing. Hiram continued to face a hostile environment post-Civil War, the era of Reconstruction. Here's Fred Knight again at Morehouse College. African Americans had limited rights in terms of voting. They did not have the same kinds of rights as free whites in the state. 
and so there were all a whole host of, of restrictions on their move, on their um, free exercise, their right to citizens. Hiram sued the government, trying to reclaim the money he felt owed from losing his supplies and equipment. He was set a legal precedent as one of the first African Americans to sue the United States government for losses incurred during the Civil War. And meanwhile, he forged ahead with a wagon-making business. But by then, the railroad had begun to expand across the continent, and the era for oxen and wagon trains traversing the prairie was nearing its end. How people and goods were being moved across the country was changing, so Hiram Young adjusted his business plan from wagons and yoke production to starting a planing mill, turning out finished lumber for other people to build with. Despite the setback of his property being destroyed, the changing industry, and all the ways the country was changing after the Civil War, Hiram Young was still successful enough after he returned to independence that he was able to contribute to the founding of St. Paul's African-American Methodist Church in 1866 with his old friend Hiram Revel's guidance. The importance after post-war of establishing that church, it's like just... In 1857, they banned religious meetings for anybody of color. And then by 1866, he establishes a church in the same town. I mean, that says something. Got some guts. And probably a little bit of money. In 1880, the census listed Hiram Young's business value at $14,000, the equivalent of half a million dollars in today's currency. John Tyler at the University of Central Missouri thinks Hiram, like many African-Americans, focused on two institutions central in their lives. I think the churches and their commitment to kind of public education. And those were places they could build community uh, to be able to, you know, make it and find places of joy, places of refuge in a very segregated and discriminatory world that they found themselves in. The two Hirams, Young and Revels, completed that church. Revels served briefly as a minister there and moved on to Mississippi to become the nation's first African-American senator. The church had to be rebuilt over the years. It still stands in its third location in downtown Independence, and services are held there for a small, mostly black congregation. And Hiram did something else that was considered unusual for black men of that era. He helped build a school. It was very unusual for African-American children to even have an opportunity to education. So the fact that Hiram Young was able to get that school built, making sure that the black children of the community had a school to go to. Like many freed blacks in America after the Civil War, Hiram Young was illiterate. He and his wife helped raise $4,000 to build a two-story schoolhouse. That school ushered in an era of learning for African-American children in independence. It was named Douglas School after the famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Young was also able to afford to send his daughter, Amanda Jane, to Oberlin College in Ohio. She returned to independence after her years there to teach and some say rise to principal of Young School. Like her father, Amanda seemed determined to uplift those around her. It's not clear exactly when Amanda worked at the school, so we don't know whether Hiram Young witnessed his daughter teaching at the school he helped build. Young passed away in 1882. Hiram's wife died 14 years after he did. That lawsuit Hiram Young filed with the federal government about the damaging of his property would not be concluded until 1907 after both of their deaths. 
The case was dismissed. None of their heirs received compensation. When Hiram died, he left no will. His daughter Amanda died in 1917, and her husband Blake has been lost to history. The City of Independence did rename Douglas School to Young School the same year Hiram died, but the absence of a first name on the building, along with the vacuum of information about Hiram, troubles former students. 84-year-old Ann Taylor attended Young School from first grade to eighth grade. I would have been so proud to have known that that school was named after a black educator, a black, not educator, he wasn't an educator, he was, he couldn't read or write, but uh, he had a interest in the, his, in the education of black people, and he was a former slave, that's what really struck me. All those students, all those years, most never knew who Young was until much later in life. It was not taught as part of their history. In some ways, Hiram Young's story is just now unfolding. It's complicated, and it's largely coming to light because of that school on a hill. Travis Boley sees Hiram Young's role as part of the story of America that begs to be told. I think a lot of people in the United States have started to realize that there's more to American history than just white people going west. The people of Independence were moved to bury Hiram Young in the white section of Woodlawn Cemetery on Nolan Road, along with his wife and daughter. There's a short street lane in town that bears his name and a small park, frustratingly small, some say, that's just outside the main town square. His portrait and a synopsis of his story make up one of several interpretive markers in the much larger McCoy Park. That's the park named for the first mayor of Independence who helped Young navigate the business climate. There's also a short lane in town that bears his name, and the church he helped found, St. Paul's African Methodist Episcopal Church, still stands. Many of its congregants attended Young School back in the day. He was not celebrated at all during my years at Young School, and even after that. Alversia Pettigrew acknowledges she may have learned about Hiram Young a lot later in life than others, and she's voiced some of her frustrations with the slow pace of remodeling at the school that bears his name, but she's happy right now. It makes me feel that, finally, Hiram Young speaks. He has a voice, and it's through the storytelling. It's through, really, the ones that maybe kept it silent. They're speaking up now, and I'm seeing black and whites alike because it's something that adds more to the pride of independence. The rehabilitation of Young School is finally complete. Christine Leakey is the executive director of Truman Habitat for Humanity, the nonprofit that fixed up the school for a new purpose. So there's just a really neat connection, we think, between what Hiram Young was about and how he was able to arrive at a, a place that he was actually gifting financial resources to fund the school, the original school. It's taken years, but the building has finally found a new destiny, reimagined and intertwined with Hiram Young's journey, and it's a resource for first-time homeowners. Paul Many is a volunteer who worked as the contractor on the rehabilitation of Young School. He spent countless hours in and out of the building, striving to restore a sense of Hiram's legacy. It, it's, it's a beautiful story of, of, of a man who was able to essentially buy his freedom and then show the community, show the area how special you can become with a drive and a work ethic and become very successful. And then 
help others at the same time. That journey represents not only one man's life and business, but because of Young's work, the American West became accessible to thousands. He opened doors to educate black school children and created a spiritual center point and community space with the church he helped found. His whole life impacted so many other people, and this monument to his accomplishments, the rehabilitation of this school, is finally complete and open to the public. Now everyone can know and share the full story of how Hiram Young defied all odds to carve out a legacy, not just for himself, but for his community. It's a legacy that's finally being celebrated and not hidden behind a wall of brick and stone or an incomplete school memory. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. KCUR's Carlos Mordano reported and produced that story with editing by Barb Shelley, me, Suzanne Hogan, and Mackenzie Martin. Our intern, Paris Norvell, did the sound design and mixed this episode. Gabe Rosenberg is our digital editor, and Krista Henthorne and David White do our graphics. Music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. And on a personal note... It's been really fun spending the summer with you all. We're going to take a little break so we can gather more stories, but stay tuned to the feed because we'll be dropping other cool KCUR Studios podcasts for you to enjoy and maybe even a little bonus People's History episode here and there. You can always send us ideas too. We're on Twitter at PHKCPod or you can email us at peopleshistorykc at kcur.org. And I just want to say, if you haven't listened already, we have an amazing archive of nearly 25 episodes from the past few years that are all ready for you to enjoy, so go back and check them out. My personal favorite this season is the story of the nation's oldest black-owned radio station, which is based out of Kansas City, and the story of raunchy Kansas City blues queen Julia Lee, who told it like it was and carved out a name for herself in this iconic music town. Okay, I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care, and thanks for listening. Hollywood writers are obsessed with the concept of an asteroid heading towards Earth and destroying civilization. But is this something we really should be worried about? I'm Kate the Chemist, and on my podcast, Seeking a Scientist, we meet the mastermind behind a real-life mission to divert the path of an asteroid. Subscribe to Seeking a Scientist, made possible by the Starris Institute.